Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been paying any attention, the shutdown talk seems to be getting louder every day. And we don't even have all the lawmakers in town yet. The House doesn't show up until next week. But that's more than enough for speculation to run wild. And instead of speculating here, we're actually going to talk details with Libby Cantrell from PIMCO about what a shutdown would actually look like this time. She's got a very compelling note out to clients. It's a little bit concerning, actually, warning that the ingredients in place for this shutdown are much more potent than what we have seen in recent memory. You start thinking, bah, shut down, that's just a weekend, we'll get back to it on Monday. And it could be a little more complicated than that. We also expect to hear from President Biden this hour. Uh, He'll be speaking a bit later about a labor deal on the West Coast. Think West Coast ports, but of course it's against the backdrop of a very difficult conversation about uh, a potential labor strike in Detroit, the UAW and the Big Three. And that's where we start with Gregory Cordy, who's with us at the table here in Washington, Uh, Great to see you, uh, Gregory. The president is going to deliver what he hopes to be a good message today, but it's hard to start taking a victory lap when we could have a massive auto strike coming within less than two weeks, isn't it? Yeah, he really wants to use this event as, as you say, a victory lap, a little bit of a uh, pep rally. Uh, after this agreement with the West Coast uh, ports and the, the dock workers uh, to uh, to get an agreement. And if you remember just a couple of years ago over the, what we've seen post-pandemic with these huge lines outside of ports and the, and the supply chain shortages we had and all this, this was very important to the Biden administration to get done. Mm-hmm. A, a prolonged uh, supply chain shock like, like a, a labor strike at ports would have exacerbated the inflation we've already seen. But now we've got to turn the page to the next thing, which is this looming strike deadline by the UAW next week uh, that looks like, you know, it's getting a little dicey. The, the union's demands are pretty ambitious. The the auto uh, the big three automakers seem to be digging in their, their heels. And the issues, interestingly, are uh, an interesting cauldron of Bidenomics where President Biden claims to be the most union-friendly president this nation's ever seen. But it's some of his policies, especially around uh, electric vehicles, that are the issues at stake in these negotiations. It's really fascinating to think of the scenario that we're in here. If it were not for the EV incentives and some of the stuff that you're referring to uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, would we be having the same conversation? I think we would be having some kind a of a long conversation. Time since a new contract. Well, in, in this, uh, there's still a lot of resentments that have been bubbling over since for more than a decade uh, because the, the unions took a bath during the Great Recession. Remember all these automaker bailouts that we had and the, their contracts were curtailed. They had to take get rid of their traditional defined benefit uh, pensions in favor of something you know along the lines of a defined contribution plan. Um, and punted a lot of these bigger issues down the road, and now they're back at the table and saying, this is our chance. We've seen 
record automaker profits. Uh, but we also see these threats from electric vehicles and new technologies similar to the writer's strike and the actor's strike that we're seeing in this summer of strikes yeah. where they're worried about AI. Similar kinds of issues at play where all these uh, workers are looking to the future and, and worried about their job security as the, their potential of their jobs being replaced by uh, less labor and cheaper labor. Yeah, maybe that goes for all of us at some point here, Gregory. Could be. Uh, does this hot labor summer have any impact on the budget negotiations about to, I guess, restart is uh, the best way to put it here in Washington? I, that's a good question, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that connection is, but it's, it's all sort of uh, in the mix. Certainly uh, with the budget negotiations, we have a little bit of a hangover from that debt deal that yeah. we talked so much about a, mm -hmm. a few months ago. Where Which doesn't feel like such a deal at this point. It, well, there's a little bit of buyer's remorse, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially on the part of Republicans who feel like, uh, maybe uh, you know they got taken for a ride on this, and now want to see some some more austerity. And mm -hmm. and now's the time to do it. That the the deadlines are. I think uh, to, to the extent that this uh, kind of goes with the, the labor deals, they're looking at uh, not wanting to punt this down the road any further. Yeah. Not put it into Christmas. All, that's that's usually what happens where there's a short-term continuing resolution. Right, they exactly. buy a few months. But then after that, we get into an election year, and nobody wants to be – nobody wins in a shutdown on election year. Um, and so I think, yeah, that all the ingredients are there for some real serious uh, deal-making that has to get done by the end of this month to, to save a government shutdown. That's right. We're going to talk about those ingredients uh, now with Libby Cantrell. Gregory, thank you. As always, great to see you. Bloomberg reporter Gregory Cordy with us in studio here. And you know Libby uh, Cantrell, the managing director, head of public policy at PIMCO, who has been watching this. And Libby, you're out with a client note here that's specific to these ingredients, writing that they are more potent than what we have seen in recent memory. What is it that makes this shutdown a little bit scarier than usual? Yeah, well, good, good afternoon. Um, well, so I think there are a few things. Um, one is just the fact that uh, there's a very skinny House majority. Republicans only have a five-seat majority. That means that they practically really can't lose many votes in order to get to that 218 number uh, that they need in order to pass the bill. Um, and then, mm -hmm. uh, I think it just as Gregory just mentioned, there is buyer's remorse uh, for this debt deal that, you know, I, we should note that about two-thirds of the Republican conference in the House actually voted for. So they did support, uh, you know, raising the debt ceiling. And, uh, and of course, in that deal, there were sort of top-line spending limits for, for next year, for the next fiscal year and for, for fiscal year 2025. But, and this mm -hmm. is the important but, um, some of those folks do have buyer's remorse. They feel uh, like, especially with the Fitch downgrade of, of the U.S. debt credit quality, that um, this is the time is now uh, in order to sort of push for these austerity measures. Uh, folks don't want to have this CR, this short-term uh, kind of stopgap that we've seen before. And as a result, uh, again, even though these spending levels were sort of already agreed to in the June debt ceiling deal, a lot of folks are walking back and sort of threatening a shutdown. And again, I think what you know we're telling clients is this is more than just an empty threat. We do think there is a mm -hmm. faction of folks in the House Republican caucus who are you know ready and willing to shut down the government, at least for a period of time. Well, that means something when Libby Cantrell says it. You go further, though, <laughs> and throw in a little history at us here, Libby. Since 1976, there have been 20 funding gaps as yes. we call them, but there have been only four times in which the government has formally shut down uh, in, in, in recent memory as well. 2013, we remember 18, 19, 
This time around, you see a full shutdown being more likely. How, how common? And can you describe to our viewers and listeners the difference? Yeah, and I think um, and this is a distinction with a difference. Um, and it's, it's an important one and one I don't think actually the markets are really paying attention to. You previously, in 2018, 2019, we saw a 35-day shutdown of the government. Mm-hmm. But, Joe, importantly, that was only a par- partial shutdown. It was only part of the government. And that has implications both for economic growth, meaning that the economic impact of a partial shutdown is really less significant than a full shutdown, but then also for economic data. And this is really important, especially when you're thinking about uh, the will will they or won't they in terms of the Fed moving, particularly in November, if the full government shuts down, that means practically that we do not have economic data. We don't have, sorry, unemployment data. We don't have uh, mm-hmm. CPI data. We don't have GDP data. And very hard to imagine a Fed raising rates in that environment. So that is sort of the implication of a full government shutdown versus a partial one, which we saw again most recently in the 2018-2019 timeframe. This one looks like if the government were to shut down, it would be the full enchilada, so to speak. It would be the entire mm-hmm. government. And as a result, again, would have reverberations for economic growth in the short term, but then also importantly, in terms of access of, for that economic data. And I think that's actually quite crucial from a market's perspective. You write that Social Security and Medicare uh, would not be disrupted, at least checks to recipients would not be disrupted. But the SNAP program, for instance, food stamps, uh, Libby, would be. Th- this is important to talk about because we do hear some members in Congress say, hey, go ahead, shut it down and make a difference anyway. But it would for millions of people. It would. And, you know, again, so practically for folks who are on those food security programs, for people who are going through the airports, um, TSA, uh, most of those employees will be deemed as essential employees, meaning that they will still work, but they won't receive a paycheck. And we all know how how cheerful people are when they're not they're having to go to work and not receiving a paycheck. Um, And so we could actually see sort of disruptions in that national parks will be shut down. So again, and this is not not to be hyperbolic here, um, but I do we do think that the chances of a broader full government shutdown are really much higher than they have been in in recent memory. Um, and and again, this is sort of coming and coinciding with a period of time from an economic perspective where there are there are already a lot of uh, fiscal headwinds that are likely going to take hold, whether it's the yeah. student loan repayments, whether it's you know tax collection for those. California uh, you know, taxpayers who haven't had to pay because of the national disaster zones or what have you, that their tax bill mm-hmm. comes due in, in October. There's some child care benefits that are rolling off at the end of September. So we see this as sort of a, we're calling it a window of weakness from a fiscal perspective this fall. Uh, and that, again, could just be exacerbated should we see this full government shutdown. So we don't want to talk about, you know, we don't want to get a bit hyperbolic, but we do think this is sort yeah. of an important, could be an important kind of macro um, factor you know, going into the fall. This strikes me as far from uh, hyperbolic. We've got to talk about reality here if this happens, especially if everybody in Washington thinks it's going to happen. This is the first real conversation that I've heard that details actually what the impact would be. And when we consider the impact potentially on the financial markets here, what Wall Street might think about it, Libby, you just pointed out something really interesting here that some folks might not consider. No economic data released? How does the market live in that world? If this did become a prolonged shutdown, what's the impact there? Yeah, and so I think that that is that again. That we would say outside of kind of the growth impact, um, and you know, some of these mm-hmm. estimates are 
you know, 20 basis points of shaving off growth uh, a week. Um, now, a lot of the, the employees who would not be paid during a shutdown do get back pay. But Joe, this is also an important nuance that we're talking about with our clients is that federal contractors don't necessarily receive that back pay. And there are about 4 million federal contractors. So again, if this goes on for a prolonged period of time from a growth perspective, the you know the growth impact could be a little bit more severe than I think a lot of economists have sort of have said. And then again, just the the fact that there won't be access to you know payrolls, to jolts, to CPI, to GDP growth. Yeah. Um, now the, all that stuff will come out eventually. Um, but the folks who are actually doing that data collection, who are calculating those figures, uh, oftentimes are not deemed as essential workers. And so they are not doing that in real time. And as a result, there'll be a delay there. So again, I think from a market's perspective, the fall already looks like it could potentially be more uncertain because of the, some of these headwinds yeah. that are gonna be facing consumers. And again, we just think that this, this sort of government sh shutdown, especially if it's a prolonged government shutdown, the last thing I'll say on that, is that there is, mm -hmm. if the government does shut down in October, so September 30th is the deadline, if Congress doesn't come to a resolution before then, you know, I guess my 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 worry is is what is the catalyst for there to actually you know be a bargain? Um, I'm not sure politically if there is one uh, that's really short term or really in the immediate future. And as a result, you could be looking at a bit more of an extended government shutdown, and we haven't had that uh, full government shutdown longer than 16 days ever. So we actually don't really know what the economic impact of that would of that would be. My God. And we're not looking right. to make history <laughs> in this case, though, Libby. Yes, we're always cheerful. <laughs> well, but are, so what are you hearing, though, from investors? Does does the investment community expect a shutdown or is Wall Street giving this a ho-hum right now and there's going to be a big freak out when it happens? I think this is honestly a more of a ho-hum. We've been sort of surprised at talking to some folks, people that are you know, clients, but even, you know, other kind of market participants. And this is really whether you know sometimes for some folks it's on their radar screen but they just really don't think it's a big issue and for others they don't even they're not even paying attention because i do think there's been so much noise out of washington and there you know i wrote this in the note that there is sort of this expectation that even though congress often do doesn't turn their homework in until the last possible moment they usually do get their homework done i guess you know again our concern is just politically right now the stars really don't seem to be aligned in order for there to be, um, you know, a you know, a, a, a compromise, you know, before before yeah. the September thirtieth date. Boy, some real talk, straight talk with Libby Cantrell. <laughs> Libby, thank you for your straight take. Talk. This is important. Yes. If this happens, people need to know what's coming. And it's great as always to share your expertise. The countdown has begun. From May fourteenth to sixteenth, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It's a tough headline. Any way you cut it, U.S. deficit explodes even as the economy grows. That's what Washington woke up to on Sunday morning. It's pretty hard to refute what we're looking at here, a deficit that balloons to $2 trillion by the end of this fiscal year. 
Right around the time the government might shut down, that would be the end of this month. Let's reassemble our panel now. Jeannie Shanzano joins Democratic analyst and, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Joined today by Chapin Fay, Republican strategist. Actum, it's great to have you both here. Uh, Chapin, look, this isn't new. It's the worst-kept secret in Washington that this is likely going to happen. It's just really a question of when and a question of Speaker Kevin McCarthy's authority, credibility, and control over his very thin Republican majority in the House. Matt Gates is speaking up now. I gave you a taste of that a little bit earlier this hour in an interview talking about the potential of firing Kevin McCarthy if he doesn't like the way this goes when the House returns next week. Here he is. When we get back to Washington in, in the coming weeks, uh, we have got to seize the initiative. That means forcing votes on impeachment. And if Kevin McCarthy stands in our way, uh, he may not have the job long. So let's hope that uh, he works with us, not against us. What do you think, Chapin? Will he have the job for long? Well, listen, he's, Speaker McCarthy's got one of the hardest jobs in politics, right? Wrangling a very unruly uh, caucus of Republicans. Uh, but, but, but Republicans like Matt Gates and a lot of the conservatives felt that they were elected and sent to Washington to advocate uh, for some of these issues. Um, so I do think uh, the Speaker is going to have to capitulate to some uh, to some of these ideas. Um, and, you know, um, the government shutdown is going to be a blame game uh, and Republicans have to be clear and concise and break down exactly how their agenda uh, affects uh, everyday Americans, because that's that's what's important. Right. Um, if you just talk about a ballooning deficit, hard to hard to tie that, how that affects positive or negative an, an average American's life. But as they see billions of dollars going to Ukraine, as they see how much money, how much, you know, local municipalities are under strain because of the migrant situation. Uh, you know, it's going to be a very difficult case to make uh, against a Republican caucus who may shut down the government for tax breaks, trying to put money back into people's pockets. So on the messaging front, I think Republicans have the better message and the better policy you know, proposal. Some of them uh, like tax breaks uh, and putting more money into Americans pockets. But um, it's, you know, a little early to tell. Speaker McCarthy has a very unruly caucus that he's going to have to, keep, yeah. you know, not necessarily keep in line, uh, but try and act as a unified force. It's going to be very difficult. Um, but as of right now, I think, you know, I think they will have an edge uh, in this in this um, upcoming battle. We do have to be specific about Republicans, right, Jeannie? Because it sure sounds like Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans are on a very different island from those in the House. The White House and the Senate appear to be in step here. Kevin McCarthy might be uh, the one out of step. Is that the case? It is the case. I mean, this is a Republican versus Republican battle, and specifically Republicans in the House versus Republicans in the Senate. In fact, on that press conference the other day when Mitch McConnell came out and we talked so much about him freezing, that press conference, he intended to come out and send a clear message to Kevin McCarthy. And that message has been very clear throughout. He said it in the speech before. They need a short-term bill to get them into the holidays. And of course, Kevin McCarthy has been very clear he's not going to do that. But the, when you look and you listen to what people are, like Matt Gates are saying, they are just not dealing in reality. House Republicans control one-sixth of the government, and they are trying to push through policies, push through ideas that they simply don't have the support for. And so that is what Kevin McCarthy has been contending with. He 
was able to herd those cats earlier, but very much like Paul Ryan and John Boehner before him, he overpromised to this very small group of people on the far right of his own caucus about spending and other things. And they are gonna hold him to delivering on that. And that is gonna put him in a very difficult position because he will need Democrats and have to concede to Democrats to get a short-term spending bill, or there's a shutdown and that hurts Republicans at a very bad time. So, you know, I agree with Chapin. He has the hardest job in DC right now, and it's gonna be, you know, fascinating to see if he can maneuver it. His predecessors were unable to, and both ultimately left. And I would not be surprised if that is Kevin McCarthy's fate at some point in this process down the road. Uh, illustrating the contrast here, Mitch McConnell, of course, the Republican leader in the Senate earlier today on the floor, talking about this supplemental request to fund the war effort in Ukraine, not to mention the debate over Pentagon spending in the broader budget. Since Putin's escalation in Ukraine, President Biden has not been as decisive as many of us would have preferred. But this is no excuse for Congress to compound his administration's failures with failures of our own with a jab at Joe Biden while he was at it, uh, Chapin Fay, Mitch McConnell and the Republican establishment, kind of the old school Republicans, seem to be very much on the same page as Joe Biden when it comes to Ukraine spending. Is this where the fallout will happen in the House? I, I think it's one area where fallout will happen. I think uh, we are, you know, um, you know and, and the rise of populism uh, is an issue uh, in the conservative party because I think we're living in an era where, our elected officials, the gap between our elected, what our elected officials are doing and what the voters want has never been wider, um, which is what is driving these Republican uh, members of the caucus, because they, again, they feel they have been sent there to achieve some of these conservative ideas. Uh, again, some of them are, like Jeannie said, not uh, living not in reality, uh, but some of them, you know, tax cuts, some of these fiscal policies, uh, this is what the Republican caucus was elected to get done. Um, and I think it's a problem for establishment Republicans like Senator McConnell. I, you know, Leader McConnell, I, you know, I have the utmost respect for him. You know, the Supreme Court wouldn't be as conservative as it is without, you know, Leader McConnell's backbone over the past uh, several years. Um, but I do think he is out of touch with what the Republic, what Republican voters currently want. Uh, I think he is out of touch. And of course, there's going to be that inter-Republican battle between the House and the Senate. Um, and as a quick aside, I once saw this might be a little morbid these days in context, but I once saw a speech by Leader McConnell where he said the Senate is where things go to die, uh, meaning, you know, that's the point of the Senate to cool things <laughs> off uh, from bills that right. come to the House. A little bit morbid in today's context um, with some of our aging leaders. Um, so there's always going to be that tension uh, with Senate Republicans uh, and House Republicans, but they're just going to have to come to some agreements. And, you know, this is a multi-level uh, negotiation. And we're in the first phase, right, where. Uh, people like uh, Congressman Gates are trying to get his points out in the media, right? That's a negotiating yes, position right. and tactic. And these are the things that he is asking for. Um, is he going to, you know, with his colleagues, shut down the government if he doesn't get 100% of what he's asking for? I'm not so sure. Uh, but they're going to have to get something big uh, in order to go along with uh, Speaker McCarthy, which, again, is his, his major problem uh, in the, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and you wonder what there is to negotiate at this point. Jeannie, I still go back a couple of months we thought we had a deal, this debt ceiling deal that brought us to the verge <laughs> of default. It was going to be the end of the world, the fiscal cliff. They actually averted that. And yet we're still going to go through the motions here as if it never happened. 
That's right. Deal schmeal, Joe Matthew. What do we know about that? You know, it's that's that's basically, you know, I was just I'm just thinking the same thing. You know, it's there was a deal. We all celebrated it. We averted the fiscal cliff and it was as if it never happened. And they're renegotiating that. And, you know, Mark had just said this earlier to you, um, you know, until and unless that deal will hold, we are going to be in an awfully chaotic system. And the reality is, is that if this is how Republican voters feel, then they need to elect more legislators to get the majority they need to push through these policies. Um, you know, to to suggest that they can push through these policies without having those people in place by just threatening to shut down the government. Well, mm -hmm. that is something that hurts all of us. And, and, you know, one thing we keep hearing is shutdowns don't matter. They don't hurt anybody, but they do. Mm -hmm. Let's remember why Fitch downgraded us because we are in a politically chaotic system that cannot work in the most basic way to keep our government running. That's a problem for all of us. So shutting down is not an option and mm -hmm. should not be an option to get your policy prescriptions passed. A lot of things to remind ourselves of. There was a deal. I just know it. I was there. I saw it. <laughs> oh, and that downgrade, both of those did happen. That's the backdrop for this debate that we continue to hash out here on Bloomberg Radio. Jeannie and Chapin stay with us as Mike Pence delivers what's being billed as a major speech today in New Hampshire to draw the line between himself and his former boss. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. So, did you hear it? Not the new Rolling Stones record, the siren song of populism, as noted by the former Vice President Mike Pence, delivering what his campaign is billing as a major speech today in New Hampshire, politics in eggs, St. Anselm, this is when it happens. A major speech about conservatism versus populism. A reference, of course, to his former boss, Donald Trump. We don't even expect to hear his name, but everyone knows who the vice president will be talking about. In his request that I reject or return votes unilaterally, power that no vice president in American history had ever exercised or taken, he asked me to put him over the Constitution. And uh, I chose the Constitution, and I always will. Mike Pence from the Republican debate, you might hear a line like that today, is actually going to equate what he sees as the fringe left and the populist right together driving the country down the road to ruin. Let's reassemble our panel and get their take on it. Jeannie Shanzano is with us along with Chapin Faye. It's great to have you both here to weigh in on this. Jeannie, I wonder uh, where we should start here. If you're not going to name Donald Trump, because it did look like Mike Pence was going to go there, but based on excerpts that we've seen, is, is a quote-unquote major address like this going to make a dent in his campaign? 
You know, I am so glad you started there, Joe, because this is exactly what I was thinking. Apparently, his advisors told reporters on a call that the speech is directed not at one candidate in particular. And to your point, Pence will not name Trump. Well, so what is he doing? Is he making a speech for posterity's sake? Is he some kind of political commentator or scholar that he is talking about the future of the GOP? Because if you're not going to name Trump and you are 40 to 50 points behind him right now, why are you running? You know, all of these people that are opposing Trump have the same problem. They look at the polls and I guess they listen to their advisors who say don't take him on. Well, then this race is over unless Trump self implodes because of legal or health reasons. So to me, this is going to be, you know, a nothing burger from the perspective of does Pence really want to beat Trump? Because to beat the guy, you have to run the race, which means you have to say you're taking him on and this is why. Otherwise, step back, do your commentary, but you're not going to make any headway when the Wall Street Journal and the CNN and the NORC say you're 40 to 50 points behind and we are looking at a couple months until the caucus and we are in September after Labor Day. What would you tell him to do here, Chapin? Because Jeannie's right. You've got Donald Trump, an aggregate of 50 percent, Mike Pence at five on a pretty good day. I know that he's going to be on the stage likely for the second debate. I guess maybe I shouldn't assume that, but it looks like he will. But how do you make a dent in a 45 point spread like this if you're not going to name the front runner? Well, look, campaigns are math problems, right? And and the former vice president uh, has a very hard math problem to solve at 5%. Um, mm-hmm. The other problem is the Republican, the numbers clearly show that the Republican Party in 2023 and moving into 2024 is solidly behind uh, the former president, Donald Trump. Um, so the other candidates have this bind where um, do you attack the president? Does that hurt your numbers? How do you differentiate yourself from someone who is so far ahead and has such a strong level of support within the base of the Republican Party. For a vice president, mm-hmm. and each candidate has a different matrix that they have to, a different problem that they have to solve. For the vice president, he's already uh, sort of in the on the never Trump side. So he's got to lean into this. The problem for him <clears throat> is that this is just not where the Republican primary voters are, whether you like it or you don't. That's just not where the Republican voters are. Um, and again, he's trying to thread that needle by not naming uh, the name. Uh, but we all know Republican voters are not stupid. Uh, you know, we all know what he's talking about and who he's talking about. So I think he's taking a little bit of a chance. But this is really the only path for certain candidates, DeSantis uh, and, and Pence in particular. Um, the other ones, you know, can can say nice things or not engage indirectly and try and and and, and get those, uh, you know, get voters that way. But they're all they're all after the same votes. They're all after the, the Republican voters who refuse to vote for Trump, which is just not as many as the he's got more than 50 yeah. percent. So even if it was one on one, Trump would still be leading. I want to ask Eugenie about Joe Biden and this same issue. He's not afraid to mention Donald Trump, but listen to the way he got to this in his Labor Day speech. I mean, typically we hear him refer to Donald Trump, not that often, but now we keep hearing about the former guy, the last guy. When the last guy was here, you were shipping jobs to China. Now we're bringing jobs home from China. When the last guy was here, when the last guy was here, your pensions were at risk. We helped save millions of pensions with your help. Mm -hmm. When the last guy was here, he looked at the world from Park Avenue. 
I look at it from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I look at it from Claymont, Delaware. Not a joke. Is he a... Well, no, maybe not a joke, Jeannie, but what's he getting at here? Why not actually say his name? You know, I think that's Joe Biden's way of speaking. I mean, that's how Joe Biden has always spoken. There's only one previous guy who was there, um, you know, and mm. the reality is, is Donald Trump hasn't wrapped up the nomination yet. He is not the primary opponent yet. Um, so maybe we hear more of that from Joe Biden. But the truth is the Biden campaign feels, and rightly so, that the more Trump they can talk about, the better. So if I was advising him, I would say, go ahead and say it. You may want to be folksy and say the previous guy, but go ahead and say Trump, because <laughs> for them, the more Trump, the better. There is very little path at this point for Donald Trump to win in the general. The Republicans are facing a very, very difficult time. And we have seen that as we've seen the special elections roll out. And that's not because Joe Biden presents such a formidable challenge because the head to heads aren't great for Joe Biden, mm -hmm. but because as we look at the issue of abortion, as we look at the issue of democracy, as we look at Donald Trump, it still looks like Joe Biden will be able to repeat potentially what he was able to do in 20. So for him, Trump is okay to say, and I would advise him to get over the folks he'd the previous guy and just go out and say it, <laughs> if not now, as soon as he wraps up the nomination. Say his name, according to Jeannie <laughs> and Chapin. I think everyone agrees on this, whether it's Mike Pence or Joe Biden. COVID back at the White House. We'll talk about it next with the panel. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Headline by the Associated Press kind of says it all here, and it's not good for the White House. To mask or not to mask is the headline. Biden goes both ways. This is not a Fox News headline. This is the Associated Press. Remembering, of course, that the first lady came down with COVID last weekend. That means all new rules for Joe Biden. Coming off of the Labor Day weekend, he was masking yesterday at the White House most of the time. He will be masking while indoors and around people in alignment with CDC guidance. And he, as, as has been the practice in the past, the president will remove his mask when sufficiently distanced from others indoors and while outside as well. All right, so that would be consistent with past policy at the White House, but that's not really the way it worked yesterday. The president, as we told you, held an important event on the East Room to award the Medal of Honor, a Vietnam War veteran. No mask, a lot of people in the room. They were all shaking hands. We reassembled our panel for some final thoughts here, Jeannie Shanzano and Chapin Fay. I just wonder, now that we're out of the pandemic here, Chapin, how careful, how deliberate does Joe Biden, does the White House need to be to avoid mixing messages and, and to open himself up to Republican criticism on the campaign? Very. I mean, the misinformation over all things COVID has been really, you know, I think a disaster. And I'm not blaming uh, any one side. I think it comes from both sides. But it is critically important for the president of the United States to be consistent uh, and 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 that's what's been missing uh, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. There has not been a consistent message. You know, should we mask? Should we not mask? You know, the, the right. does the vaccine help against the new strains? 
uh, we don't know, but you should get vaccinated anyway. That just doesn't sound very scientific to me. I, th I think everyone needs to get their act together in the federal government. This was supposed guidelines. to be a winning issue for the Biden administration. Jeannie, does he mask up or move on? You know, I think they have to follow the protocol. And when anytime there's a breach from that, which we saw yesterday, it's a problem. So they do have to be clear on the protocol. They have to follow it. I don't relish wearing a mask again, so I'm empathetic to this. Jeannie and Chapin, great conversation. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.